Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about the mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this week's episode is someone who I came across on Twitter when she put a call out to talk about her experience of a female health condition called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, otherwise known as PMDD. Jennifer Jordan is a freelance digital PR manager and has lived with PMDD during her teenage years. PMDD is a rare form of premenstrual syndrome or PMS, which causes a range of emotional and physical symptoms every month during the week or two before a woman's period. PMDD usually occurs during the luteal phase of a woman's menstrual cycle. Now, usually this is an issue well out of my comfort zone, but in a previous job I worked in at Bart's Health NHS Trust, I helped launch their podcast, which covered this issue with a woman called Annika, who runs a platform around PMDD awareness called Hormones and Heartache. So through her, I became not well-versed, but kind of versed in this issue, and I wanted to cover this issue on my own podcast here at Vent 2. So in this episode, we discuss Jennifer's childhood as an only child and how she navigated periods of loneliness in school, abandonment and attachment issues she's had to deal with from growing up in a single-parent household, and we also discuss body image issues and self-harm behaviours she experienced as a teenager and in her early 20s. We finish by talking about the grief she experienced from losing her grandparents and, of course, a deep dive into her experience of PMDD. So this is how my check-in with Jennifer Jordan went. Jennifer, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you for letting me check in with you. When I saw your call out on social media, as I'm literally always on Twitter now, finding podcast guests to talk about your PMDD, I was keen to get you on, help not just you, Hopefully my female listeners who don't have it, but also my male listeners who might not have any idea about the condition or the language to help their female partners if they are struggling with the condition itself or just their periods in general. First of all, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you so much for asking me to come on to the podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity. No problem. We are going to talk about your PMDD, but also your holistic mental health journey, as I always like to call it on this podcast. So without further ado, Jennifer, are you ready to start the show? Yes, let's go. This pod is going to be a very simple one structure-wise, Jen. So we're just going to talk about your mental health journey and then we're going to do a quick fire mental health chat at the end. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question first. Tell me back to early life in the Northeast, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Jennifer we meet here? Yeah, I've always been quite an anxious child. Uh, Like growing up, I was an anxious child. So um, I think I carried that into my adult life with me. And there was definitely some kind of depressive episodes as I was growing up. So I think that's where everything originated from that. But since then, you kind of learn to adapt and you learn different strategies as well. And you seek counselling and there's various things that take you up to where you are today. And when it comes to your childhood, you grew up as an only child with a single mother in your early years, and you were a very shy and introverted child, which I'm sure the anxiety probably had an effect on or was probably triggered by or, you know, definitely had a relationship. Was that purely because you were an only child or was it a kind of mix of what I just said about your kind of natural personality or inclinations and and traits? Yeah, I think it was probably a bit of both. Um, When you're growing up as an only child, you don't have siblings around for that early socialisation and you don't have anyone to play with or to create games with or you know you're kind of just left to your own devices in a way obviously I did have friends growing up but then you'd kind of come back home and and you'd be on your own and you'd be expected to just kind of get on with your own creativity so I spent a lot of time with adults in my family I was the only child of my family Uh, I didn't have any kind of younger cousins or anything so yeah I was very shy and I was really attached to my mum as well so because it was just me and her so I think being quiet and being sensitive is just my natural personality but it also is definitely 
been because of the way that I was brought up as an only child as well yeah and because of that you said you struggled to get on with other children when you entered the education system was that because of that lack of early socialization yeah I think it was just simply being unsure of how to socialize with other kids because I was used to having really grown-up conversations with the adults in my family I was given quite grown-up decisions to make I mean thinking back it's so it's not really grown-up decisions but my mum would ask me how I thought we should decorate the house or what we should get on the food shop and things like that but she would ask my opinion on a lot of things so I think speaking to adults that was just the way that I learned how to converse with other people so I wasn't really speaking on the level of my own peers very much so yeah I found it quite difficult to establish a connection with people my own age. And I'm understanding right in saying that part of this introversion meant that you were naturally quite emotionally intelligent from an early age you would be very perceptive to how others were feeling However, the downside to that is that you would absorb their emotions and experiences and take them on, which can be a little bit problematic, especially when you're a child and you don't know how to regulate your emotions as well. How did you balance that then and as you got older? I think, I mean, going back to like absorbing other people's emotions, because my mum had her own mental health issues. When I was a child, I was just experiencing that via her. I was just so in tune with her emotions and her experiences and her reactions to life. And it was inevitable, really, that I would just naturally absorb that and kind of begin to mirror her behaviours in a way. So I've always been incredibly perceptive and I'll notice slight changes in, in body language and tone of voices where others might miss it, which can indicate unhappiness or anger or other range of emotions. I would just be really in sync with that. Uh, I still am. And... I think trying to balance that when you get older, there's benefits of that and there's obviously the cons of it. I think the benefits of it is I'm a really good empathiser with people. I can really get on their level. I can put myself in another person's shoes really easily and I'm a good listener. But also when you do absorb all of that, it can be exhausting. It can be quite draining and you feel like you get to a point where you're all, almost trying to preempt people's emotions and reactions to things, which can be draining, especially in a workplace environment as well. And I have to remind myself that I'm probably just reading into things too much or I'm reacting too early to something that there's nothing rooted in certainty there. It's just my own mind kind of trying to predict the way that these people are going to react or their emotions without having confirmation of that. Let's fast forward to your teenage years now. So your mother remarried. So you then had a stepfather in your life, a completely new paternal figure, as you had never known your biological father at that point. So how did this new dynamic affect your mental health? I was about 11 or 12 when my mum married her new partner, my stepdad. And it was kind of just at that stage when I was starting to get naturally curious about my biological father and why he was absent from my life and I kind of felt weirdly defensive about him towards this new man in our lives, which is very strange because I didn't know this guy. I didn't know my biological father at all, but I just felt like, who is this new person trying to take his place? You know, I had this void in my life where he would have been, and now this new person's trying to take it. And I felt really kind of conflicted about that. And everything kind of, it felt like it moved really fast. So my life was really upturned and I think I resented that difference in routine that I was used to. I was used to it being just my mum and then we had to move house and I felt like he was the root cause of that and that's why I didn't really get on with my stepdad and I couldn't see that he was there to improve our lives at that point. One very inevitable and I'm sure natural emotion you began to feel as you got older and and navigated these teenagers like you said was abandonment issues in this period but your mum and your grandparents played a big role in your life and you developed a phobia shall we say of both of them or all of them dying how did that impact your mental health well as I said I was always really an anxious child and on edge and I think because knowing I was kind of the odd one out with my school friends and everything, knowing that my dad had left kind of before I was born, I felt as though my other family members were also going to leave me in some way. And my grandparents, they played a huge, huge role in my upbringing. They were like my, they were kind of like my second parents in a way. And they helped my mum raise me because she was working as a police officer. So I would stay at their house for most of the week and they'd take me to and from school. They'd feed me, they'd ward me, look after me and take me on trips to various different places. And then when my stepdad came along, they would be a refuge 
for where I could go and feel safe when we didn't get on, when we'd have these arguments and these fights. I think I was just always worried that they were all going to leave me and I became really preoccupied with death from a very young age, which sounds incredibly morbid now, but I just had this fascination with the finality of it and the fact that if these people who meant so much to me in my life and I relied on them so heavily, if they weren't there anymore, then what would happen to me? What would that then mean for me? I just couldn't kind of comprehend death itself obviously you don't as a child that you're not meant to <laughs> and I don't think anyone does really but for some reason I, I remember a few nights where I just couldn't get to sleep without speaking to my grandparents first my mum had to ring them up and kind of reassure me that they were alive <laughs> before I could actually fall asleep just having that reassurance was something that I just needed as a kid and how did that affect your ability to form not just healthy attachments to them where you didn't have to phone them up before you went to bed in case they died, but other people when they mm. entered your life? So friends, for example, or boyfriends or, or other people entirely that I can't think of. I think it probably affected my like, attachment style to people, especially obviously friends and partners. I would feel very intensely about friends at school. And I'd want to see them a lot. I'd want to hang out with them. And then I'd feel so lost and empty when I had to go back home and just be on my own again. And I'd be looking around, you know, wondering how I can pass the time before I could see them again. And just having this kind of unhealthy, not obsession, but really preoccupied with spending my time with these people. And it was like that with boyfriends and when I first started getting into relationships as well I'd be really kind of just throw myself into these relationships because I just couldn't form that healthy attachment to them because I was scared that I was going to get left. And when did these abandonment issues either stop entirely or become more manageable? Have they ever stopped? I don't think they've really stopped especially in relationships I've always been quite anxiously attached to people but I do think when you're an anxious person you can sometimes just be drawn to uncertainty and kind of become used to that inconsistency in relationships and anything that feels secure and stable just becomes so alien to you completely that you just naturally kind of will pull away from those types of friendships or types of relationships but now I am in a secure and loving relationship I don't really feel the same way that I used to I don't feel like I'm desperately trying to hold on to this person to get them to stay in case they abandon me so I feel like I've kind of grown a lot from that time and I'm definitely a lot more secure in myself in all of my relationships. Unfortunately the next part we're going to talk about is something that many teenage girls go through and you suffered with body image issues and you began to self-harm as a result this was largely through binge eating so would you say this was purely binge eating or would you label it enough to be as severe as an eating disorder or a binge eating disorder so the label goes? I think as many, many girls brought up in the late 90s and early 2000s whose mothers were on the Slim Fast diet one week and the Atkins diet the next week and seeing all of these really derogatory headlines about famous women body shaming them, like who's the best and worst beach bodies? I think you can kind of absorb that negative language about body shaming really early on and you just look at yourself and you kind of start to dislike what you see and you become really occupied with your body image. And I think I learned very early on the mindset of this attitude towards there being bad food and good food. And lots of so-called bad food actually can make you feel good when you're upset or when you're sad. And you can rely on these types of food to kind of raise your happiness levels. So I would binge eat carbs and chocolate crisps. And I wouldn't purge that. I wouldn't make myself sick, but I would feel this intense, overwhelming guilt and regret the next day. I'd cry about it. I'd feel depressed afterwards. And then maybe the next day or the next few days, I'd then overexercise. And then I would restrict my food to kind of make up for it. And then in terms of self-harm, I found that I was physically hurting myself as a almost welcome distraction from these painful feelings that I was having as a teenager, of feeling really out of place, feeling alone and isolated. It was just some kind of some kind of distraction and a way to, of pulling my focus from that onto something else and to almost kind of give myself a visualised thing to focus on. And I just felt really out of depth with my life and I would kind of see other teenagers and think, how are you... So together, how are you 
coping with just general life things like school, college, home life, how are you making decisions on the daily? You know, I just felt really out of place. And I think that my self-harming gave me some sense of relief in a way. And it was a distraction. And I was also dealing with a lot of conflict at home with my stepdad. Like I just didn't want to be there at all. I felt like I was floating around. So I almost didn't have a place that I felt safe. It was only being at, at my grandparents where I felt like I actually belonged somewhere. A lot of what you spoke about there comes back to this element of control as well as relief and distraction. And this is something that comes up with loads of people who have come on the podcast and talked about eating disorders and self-harm. When did you start getting control in a healthy way and begin to stop self-harming? So I found that I would almost get triggered by something and then I'd want to punish myself in some way by hurting myself. And it was just this compulsion. It was like a overwhelming compulsion that I'd almost trained my mind into thinking that this thing that I'm doing would help even when obviously it didn't but I've been free from self-harming behaviors for about six or seven years now I've just learned other coping mechanisms and realized that I just don't need to take it out on my body anymore there's other ways to to deal with it that I can express my feelings and and my emotions in, in a much healthier way. Let's fast forward to university now So you're a Middlesbrough girl and you moved to Sheffield for your university degree. Now, it's fair to say a lot happened during this period. So the first mental health difficulty you had was when you went through a relationship breakup. You then had a family bereavement and you were in a depressive period as a result. So first of all, how did that affect your mental health? Because you said you decided to see your local GP. How did that go? So... Going to university and all those things happening, everything just felt like it happened all at once. And I just didn't know if I could ever catch a break. It felt like, what is going to happen next? So it affected my mental health really badly. I think, especially when you're at uni and you're moving away, it's meant to be the best part of your life. It's meant to be the best years of your life. And I was seeing my flatmates form all of these new friendship groups. And they were going on nights out every week and they were just living their best lives, exploring the new city and... I was meeting new people, but I was just so stuck in this state of anxiety and and depression. And I just feel like I missed out on so much. I would love to go back and redo it. I much preferred just being in my room, writing, or I was watching stuff on my laptop, or I I took my guitar, I was playing guitar. I would much prefer to just be in my own little world than have to go out and socialise. But I did realise that there was a point where, especially after I had a family bereavement, that I just needed to get out of this awful dark place that I was in and I needed help. So yeah, I went to my student GP at university when I was about 20, 21. And I wasn't too apprehensive about going to the doctors either because I think obviously growing up with my mum with having her mental health issues, mental health issues just, it wasn't a stigma to me. So I I felt perfectly happy reaching out and, and getting help, but it definitely was a turning point for me. And the doctor was so kind and she was so understanding and I'd previously managed my mental health by, as I say, shutting myself away. But I just realised that I needed to reach out to someone. And whether that was in the form of counselling or medication, I was just up for trying anything at that point. You were then put on antidepressants. So you've been on them on and off for the last 10 years. What have they done for your mental health? Have they been helpful or not? They have saved my life. And I wouldn't ever underestimate the power that they've had in putting me on the right track in life and keeping me here so first I was put on fluoxetine or Prozac that tends to be the first one that people get put on and that helped initially but then I just tanked again and I felt the exact same as before I just it felt like I was taking sugar pills they just weren't doing anything at all and then I was put on to sertraline which I've been taking for about nine years now on and off on various dosages so I genuinely don't think I would be here if I hadn't gone on medication and I could come off them. I'm perfectly fine with the possibility of coming off them, but I'm also perfectly fine with knowing that I will probably need them again further down the line, which is just absolutely fine because I know that they work for me. You were also given at this point extensions for your university assignments. Did that at least give you a bit of breathing space to give you the best chance of getting the best grade possible, despite obviously the difficulty you were going through at the time? Yeah, I think towards the end of uni, I was just so ready to leave. I just kind of had enough of 
the theories of my degree course and I wanted to put it all into practice. I studied quite a practical course, it was events management, so I just felt like there's only so much you can learn in, in that environment before you have to just get out there and do it yourself and get that experience. So I think having extensions during that depressive episode helped me in terms of, uh, it took away a kind of overwhelming pressure that I had, like the deadlines which kind of taken away from me, which was great, but I also reached a point where I just lacked motivation in general for my degree course. So I wasn't really striving to do my best anyway. Let's fast forward again to when you're 27 years old now, Jennifer. So you've left university, you've been graduated for a few years. And another big moment happens when your grandparents died. And we've spoken about how important they were in formulating everything when it came to your life in your early years and teenage years. So this happened four years ago, so just before COVID-19 shocked the world and enveloped it. Tell me about this moment and your grieving process and how that impacted your mental health? So my granddad passed away from Alzheimer's disease in 2017 and then my grandma died a year and a half later and in all honesty it was just like having the rug pulled from under me. It was like my security blanket was just completely gone. I I didn't have a safety net anymore. With my granddad, with anyone that suffers from Alzheimer's and, and dementia, it's almost like this living death that as a family that you're going through you grieve for them before they've actually died because they aren't really the person that you loved anymore and they haven't been for a while they're just not there so you're grieving at certain increments constantly you're grieving the first time that they don't recognize you you grieve the first time that they forget your name you grieve when you have to start feeding them when they can't feed themselves and it's kind of like a multiple instances of grief before they've actually died the grief that you feel after someone has passed away in that situation is completely different to say like when my grandma died because she died from quite a sudden illness so it was quite unexpected so that was a totally different scenario and I just felt completely numb and I had a very delayed reaction to the bereavement process with my grandma so I kind of had this difficulty in processing it because I just just was under this overwhelming disbelief that it actually happened so I I was then unable to accept that it had happened. You spoke there about this safety net no longer being there when they died did it also feel like a door to your childhood had closed permanently? Absolutely even though it all happened and they died when I was 26 27 when they were both gone I felt like I wasn't a kid anymore it just felt like I had no one to keep me safe And I think I wrote in my journal at the time that I felt so untethered and as though I just didn't have roots anymore. I just didn't have anything keeping me sane anymore. So, yeah, I think I felt like I had to grow up, even though I was obviously an adult and I was living on my own and I had a job and everything I still felt like a kid whenever I'd go back to their house because they treat me like that so yeah it definitely felt like a, a door to my childhood closed when I lost them both. And given the abandonment issues and fears that we talked about earlier in the pod when both your grandparents actually did die did that impact your grief at all did those abandonment issues come flooding back? Yeah definitely because losing them was my worst fear actualized it was my worst fear coming true so when it did eventually happen I found myself feeling really hardened to it so then from that point on it kind of almost felt like I didn't have anything else left to lose because I'd lost the biggest part of my life by losing them so I think yeah it did it did flare up the abandonment issues but I, I also feel like at that point I was just like well I've lost these people now so you know what else can possibly be taken me. And you spoke about those favourite memories that you had when you were growing up together, when you were a child and you were a teenager. Are there any sayings or mantras or phrases that you had from both of them that you still hold close to you now? Oh, they were very different people in terms of approaches to life, which is quite funny because they were together for about 65 years, but they were so different. My granddad was a very, very stubborn guy. He would say that if you didn't want to do something, then don't do it. You don't owe anyone anything. You don't owe anyone an explanation. It's your life. You do you, basically. Whereas my grandma, she was very stoic and she wasn't necessarily a people pleaser, 
But she would say that if you've made a commitment and you have a responsibility for something, then you have to do it. You know, it could come back on you. It could make you look bad. You need to be accountable for your own actions and for what you've agreed to do. I've kind of taken on a, a mix of both of those attitudes. It's just knowing, obviously, which is suitable for, for what circumstances. And before we come to the PMDD, during the pandemic, you also went through another relationship breakup, as well as adjusting to the crazy life in lockdown. So how did these two events impact your mental health in tandem? Terribly. <laughs> My long-term <laughs> relationship ended during the first lockdown. So there was kind of two grieving processes happening at once of what I thought was stable and secure and also living alone during that really difficult time. And I guess with the breakup, like because of the lockdowns, I was unable to have the usual response, which is to go out with your mates and distract yourself. Uh, I had to just sit alone, sit with it and be alone with it and process it during that very, very strange, isolating time. And now we have finally come to the main reason we are speaking today, Jen, which is your diagnosis of mm -hmm. premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMDD. So first of all, tell the listeners what it is, why it is different from, say, a, a woman just having a heavy flow when you started to experience these symptoms and when you were diagnosed. So premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMDD, it's a hormone related mood disorder that can affect women and people who have periods every month, every single month. So to give a quick science lesson, in a menstrual cycle, you have four phases, which are menstruation, so it's your period. Then you have a follicular phase where your body is preparing for ovulation. Then you have your actual ovulation. And then we have something called the luteal phase. And this is where all of the good stuff happens with BMDD. The luteal phase is unfortunately the longest phase. So it can last up to 12 days each month. That's when you're most likely to experience these PMDD symptoms. So it's kind of like a severe form of PMS or PMT, essentially. But it can affect almost everything in your life when you suffer from it. And it can be completely devastating. For me, I've always struggled with bad mood swings leading up to my period. Ever since I was a young teenager, I was always very teary, very quick to anger. I'd be extremely irritable to the point where I'd have to leave the house if I could hear someone making a noise, such as like scraping their plate with the cuddle while they're eating. I'd have to just leave. Otherwise, I'd just want to explode. I'd cry the slightest thing, uh, feeling unable to get out of bed really quick to anger and I just feel really hopeless and like there's no point to my life and I'd get the most insane brain fog I just couldn't concentrate I was really struggling with work when it was like college work uni work and then when I was actually in the professional environment I just wasn't performing my best during this week before my period so I kind of spotted a pattern with my menstrual cycle and the mood swings early last year actually and I found out about this condition called PMDD and it was like a light bulb switched on I was like oh my god I think this is it this would describe everything of what I'm going through so I made a note of all my symptoms over a few months so I could definitely spot a pattern there and then I was lucky enough to speak to a doctor via private healthcare that I had in my previous workplace and the doctor there formally diagnosed me with PMDD which was great to get that diagnosis. You told me off air that the week before your period, you would feel this urge to hit a self-destruct button. Just tell me how that manifests in reality. Yeah, so my unhealthy coping mechanisms for anything that triggered these depressive responses in me, kind of in general, when I did go through depressive episodes and also throughout my PMDD week every month, was to binge eat. I drink excessive amount of alcohol just on my own at home many times to the point where I would throw up I wouldn't look after myself wouldn't look after my house I'd just neglect my work responsibilities I'd be logging online then I'd be hungover and the only thing that I cared about that actually helped me so much throughout these episodes was my cat <laughs> my cat Marnie because I knew that she relied on me to literally live so she was my reason for getting up and, and carrying on. And I think having this little being, being so dependent on me, kind of pulled me out of that kind of depression as well. 
And after you come out of that mental state, which comes when you go on your period, what happens? Are you relieved? Are you sad? Are you guilty for how you perhaps behave towards others in the previous two weeks? What is your mental health state like there? Yeah, it definitely just feels like you look back and you think, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I let that slide. I can't believe I let that person down. I can't believe I acted like that. It just feels like a cloud lifts and you're able to see everything clearly again. Getting your period just feels like such a huge relief in a way because it's kind of reassurance that what you were feeling during that previous week just wasn't real. (laughs) And I got through it again. And you feel incredibly guilty about how you behaved. And if I was in a, a work environment, it meant that I then have to go back over maybe pieces of work that I'd done and do them again, or I'd have to do extra work on the evening, or I'd have to do work on a weekend just to play catch up with things. So yeah, I, I think there's a definite case of you spend the next week or so just picking up the pieces of how you reacted or what you did during that phase. You spoke there about this sensitivity and one trait it provokes in you or provoked in you was an extreme sensitivity to rejection. So did this interact with your previous abandonment issues in any way to create this kind of monster cocktail of emotion? I think there would be some connection there, definitely, because you perceive even the slightest rejection, even just a change in the tone of someone's voice. And I would think that that meant that they hated me. Or if my manager would ask me for something, I would think, oh God, she's going to use this against me to try and get me fired. It was just so extreme, like so far away from reality. And I would just feel this imminent sense of abandonment or rejection, just depending on the way that people spoke to me or how they behaved with me. That's definitely one of the symptoms that I experienced. The extreme emotional difficulties at its worst comes in the form of hopelessness, dark thoughts, and even suicidality. In that moment, who is the Jennifer we meet here? Is it just a completely different person? Yeah, absolutely. I don't feel like right now with my present mindset where I'm really stable and and happy, uh, I look back and I just think, wow, I can't believe that I would get to that level of loneliness that level of sadness that I would even be considering taking my own life and the fact that I have been in those depths of despair and feeling like you can't crawl out of this little cave in your own mind the hopeless thoughts and thoughts of suicide just are completely unrecognizable to me when you're out of that but to go through that each month and to look back on that and think, oh my God, I'm having to go through that on this regular cycle is just wild to think that so many people have to go through this as well. When you spoke there about the PMDD affecting how you behaved in the workplace, and for example, your manager saying that they were scared to approach you or telling you certain things or providing feedback. And now, when you initially told this to me off air, I, for some reason, I don't know why, my brain went back to this episode of the IT crowd where Jen's visited by, as they put it, Aunt Irma. And she turns into this, into this like comedically flame haired demon. Her voice is modulated to be extra deep. And Moss and Roy are like terrified of going to, into her office. Despite the comedic element, is there any actual truth in that or is it for PMDD is it even worse <laughs> no that that's me that is me every month <laughs> um, and it's probably how my boyfriend sees me during that week of PMDD as well um, with flames coming out of my hair no work would completely overwhelm me and as I said a, a manager asking for an update from me it would put me in a spiral of paranoia thinking that I was going to be fired and then that's like extra anxiety thinking that, oh god I'm gonna lose my job and I felt like I was being told off for something and yeah I couldn't cope with basic tasks and even the social element of, of being in a workplace would just rile me up during bad episodes I just didn't want to sit with everyone and have lunch with people I didn't want to socialize go to socializing events I didn't want to go to the pub after work or anything I just feel angry the slightest inconvenience and I'd take it out on people as well and I become really bitchy and kind of like this version of myself that I just hated that just wasn't me 
Thankfully, I work for myself now. I'm a freelance marketing manager. So I think going self-employed has probably been the best thing that I could have done for my mental health because I can manage my own workload. I have autonomy over who I work with and the times I work as well. Sometimes I'll work best first thing in the morning. I can get up at the crack of dawn and I can just knock out some work and have the rest of the day. And then other times, if I'm going through my PMDD symptoms and having a bad week, I can take a few days off. I won't feel guilty. I don't need to answer to anyone. I can just make up that time as and when. I can work on a Sunday if I like. So, yeah, it definitely affected my work. And there's been times when I've left previous internships and previous roles rather impulsively because I've just thought, like, screw this. I can't put up with this anymore. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And then in retrospect, I think, oh, God, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. I should have spoken to a manager about how I was feeling. I should have been honest with how I was feeling. I should have managed my workload better. But we live and learn. Building on that episode I just talked about, unlike your experience, Moss and Roy then research the topic of periods and they ask Jen if she wants a big girls night out to help her feel better. Now, that might have helped her, but I imagine it wouldn't be the main thing to help you. So outside of just the solution of going on to your period, what does help you get through that? And sometimes the only thing that I want to do and what helps me immensely is literally just laying down in a dark room, just kind of taking away all sensory stimulation can just calm my mind so well when I'm feeling really irritable, when I'm feeling angry, when the brain fog is just causing me to not be able to function during work hours. I can have a big cry when I'm in bed and that helps. I also like writing my journal, just getting everything down, how I'm feeling and just so they're not stuck inside because otherwise they just mount up and mount up and then it can explode. And when it does explode, it means I've pushed myself too far. I've not given myself the space to to express how I'm feeling. And my boyfriend is also really helpful as well. He takes a load off and he's very receptive to, to how I'm feeling. So sometimes I don't even have to tell him that I'm going through my week or my rad week that we call it. <laughs> he just knows. So he knows to give me space and to kind of let me do my thing on my own and not kind of hover around and get my nerves. <laughs> You described a moment off air to me when you came on or when you come on to your period as metaphorical curtains opening and birds singing. And that feels quite dramatic. That mood swing from negative to positive does feel quite huge. Just explain what happens when that does happen. It feels like that scene in Snow White where she's going around the room with all the animals following her and she's opening the curtains and the sun is shining. And like it's just a complete difference you kind of turn from the evil witch who hates everyone to Snow White and it's brilliant you kind of think yes right I can get on with my life now it's like a switch and your symptoms will either fade or sometimes you just wake up and you're like oh period's here right I feel like a different person now and it can be difficult to predict and you don't know how you're going to react to your symptoms every month because sometimes obviously external factors external stresses job work relationships whatever they can have a massive impact on how your symptoms manifest as well so you're not sure every month how it's going to be you spoke there about having a very supportive boyfriend who can intuitively know when you are about to go through these periods yeah pardon the pun keep saying Mm -hmm. the word period here (laughs) for my male listeners who might know a woman who has PMDD or has a friend of a friend or something like that, what advice would you give them from your experience that would help them help women like you? I remember explaining PMDD to my boyfriend last year when I was diagnosed with it because it got to a point where he was certain that I was going to break up with him because of the way that I was acting. And so that kind of triggered his anxiety and he was just like, look, what is going on? And I was like, I kind of have a feeling of what's going on, but I haven't been diagnosed at this point, so I'm unsure. But look, this is what I think happens every month to me. So you might feel like I'm going to break up with you every month. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I just need to God. <laughs> yeah. <a> poor lad. <laughs> I, know, I, know. I know that that's not fair. That's not fair on anyone. So then I had to really think about how to express myself in a better way because it then isn't just affecting me. It's also affecting him it's affecting someone else and it could affect our relationship in general and I didn't want that to happen so I think what I said to him was I just need space and don't ask me anything where I need to make a decision such as what I want for tea or for dinner 
because that just inexplicably irritates the life out of me. I need you to take these decision-making things away from me. But it was really important to me to come on this podcast to help other men or other partners of people who had PMDD and to give them some advice. So I actually asked my boyfriend what he would say to someone else about how to kind of live or to deal with someone that you love who's going through this. And he said, just try and be perceptive to how your partner is feeling. Do your own research into the condition. He's like, the first thing that I did when he told me about this was Google the hell out of it. And reading up on what the symptoms are so I could recognise when you maybe were going through this. And to try and understand how they're likely to be feeling as a way to explain that behaviour and make you understand it. So as not to think, oh, she, she's acting like she doesn't want to see me today or she's avoiding me. That's not the case. That's just the fact that she needs some time on her own. And he also said that he tries to make my life easier by maybe doing things around the house so I don't have to think about cooking. He'll go and do the food shop or, you know, he'll tell me what we're going to eat that night so I don't have to think about making a decision and a major thing as well is communication. Communication in general mm. in the relationship is absolutely key. But directly ask what your partner needs from you when they're going through this and to kind of be patient with it as well. You know, they might not even know what they need, which is perfectly fine. But just say, hey, I'm here. If you do need something, just let me know. This is all really good advice. But I'm also conscious of the fact that some lads might find talking about periods pretty difficult, Jennifer, as it doesn't affect them. And they have no idea what girls go through as much as we can try and understand. So what is the one thing that perhaps your boyfriend did or perhaps boyfriends in general can try and do to get over perhaps a general awkwardness if they feel uncomfortable addressing it? I think just get your phone, open Google and search PMDD. There's so much out there I mean I think there needs to be more out there don't get me wrong but mm. there's a lot out there about symptoms in general just being able to recognize them you don't have to understand them just recognize when the moods might be changing and that can give you a heads up on when to give your partner space and when to ask if they need anything from you if they need some stress taken off and how to make their lives easier as well and I think as well it's important to just offer reassurance and just say that you love them and you're there for them. And if they feel like they're messing up, just say you're not messing up. You're just going through this thing. You have this chronic condition. You're not a bad person, essentially. <laughs> and that you still love us. That's all that we need to be told. So basically, don't do what Ryan Gosling did in that scene in The Notebook. When he's just going, what do you want? Yes. What do you want? <laughs> that is absolutely the worst thing. That's how you get things thrown at you. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> let's talk about advocacy now because you haven't done too much work on it so far so I'm not going to dedicate an entire separate topic to this but you wanted to talk about this as you are entering this early stage of this journey or this new journey I should say mm -hmm. so just tell me about why you wanted to do this and why you wanted to help other women like yourself I think when I started to research the condition I just learned that there wasn't much visibility out there at all especially from people who are actually experiencing it there's a certain amount of Instagrammers, not many UK ones that, that I've seen. It all comes from a kind of scientific viewpoint of what is happening and maybe the initial understanding of why with the increase of hormones at a certain time of your cycle. But doing your own research, I think, is quite surprising to me how disproportionately it's visible online and in the media in general so part of research that I actually found is that people with PMDD are most likely as well to have ADHD mm. so there's a magazine called I think it's called Attitude Mag that found that 46% of women with ADHD also experience PMDD so there's definitely a, an overlap there that I didn't realize and there's certainly behaviors that I have seen within myself that are probably ADHD symptoms too. So mm. that's another area for me to explore. But with PMDD, I believe the statistic is one in 20 women have this. So, and that's a lot of people in the UK. And there's a lot of people kind of dealing with this on their own. So it's, it's really important that we do raise awareness. And I think that's a main 
part of why I did want to come on this podcast, just to kind of lend my voice to this condition. And you've spoken there about the research you've done. What things would you want to change in the wider conversation in how we talk about PMDD, treat it in the healthcare system Mm -hmm. and write about it or speak about it that would help you and other women? I think they're just acknowledging that it is a chronic, debilitating mental health condition. It's a mental illness that needs to be taken seriously. It's not just, oh, she's on a period, oh, it's just PMS. There have been cases of women who have taken their own lives due to PMDD or suspected undiagnosed PMDD. So really, more awareness of this condition really is suicide prevention in a way. And we need to push through this stigma around reproductive health and mental illness, especially in the workplace. I think there needs to be a lot more things that are put in place for people who are struggling with the mental health in the workplace and around PMDD because a lot of people haven't heard of it. So they might not even be aware that they have it because it's not spoken about that often. Um, I think we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now, Jen. So first of all, what has it taught you about yourself? Oh, probably that I'm not crazy, that I'm, <laughs> that I'm <laughs> not just kind of imagining these things happening. The fact that they come and go and then you think, did that really happen? Did I just go through the week from hell and now I feel completely fine? This journey of being diagnosed, I think, it's kind of shown me that my feelings were valid all along and that I'm not a weak person struggling with this condition. You can't be a weak person when you're struggling with mental illness. You're a strong person. And having a hormone-related mood disorder kind of proves that I'm resilient as well because I go through this every month, you know. So it's taught me a lot about myself and it's taught me that I can grow from from having really unhealthy coping mechanisms from self-harm and binge eating to where I am now, where I feel a lot more stable and I'm aware more of the way that I do react to things. I think that's just proved to myself that I can kind of get through anything at this point. And as a final question before we move on, if you could go back and talk to the Jennifer who was struggling with her PMDD and didn't know what was wrong with her, the Jennifer who was self-harming or the Jennifer who was grieving for her grandparents, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? I would say you just need to hold on. You just need to hold on a little bit longer. This isn't the end for you and it will get better. There's a whole lot of life to be experienced and there's a whole lot of good things coming your way. And I think... Just stick with it, basically. Our final topic of conversation, Jen, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health? I'm in a really good place right now. I'm still on medication. So with my PMDD, I have to up my dose during my week that I experience symptoms and that's been going well as a treatment plan for me so I'm also exercising regularly I've become someone I thought I never would be and I go to the gym and I'm also taking supplements and I think in combination with medication going to the gym and taking a lot of supplements so that I rattle every day I think in combination that's all supporting my mind really well And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I think I was probably around 12 years old. I was really into my music, I still am, and I could identify a lot with how I was feeling in the lyrics from the music for my favourite bands and they just kind of expressed how I was feeling into words and music was and still is a massive outlet for me. So I think feeling depressed and down, but knowing that other people are also going through that was an absolute turning point for me when I was younger, that you're not alone and that other people are are also just trying to figure out how they're feeling and trying to figure out a way to verbalise and express their emotions as well. Yeah, so I think I became quite self-aware of, of mental health at a young age. And, and as I mentioned, my mum had her issues as well. So I was experiencing that and kind of witnessing what she was going through. So yeah, it's always been something that's been there and that I've been aware of. Tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health. So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have looking back? Did it feel like on the one hand, this big burden or 
moment or weight to lift off your shoulders or on the other something quite easy insignificant and normal to do yeah I think the first chat that I would have had was with my mum I think I don't know if you remember a website called live journal and I think it was on like the family computer it's kind of like an online blog outlet and people could just post whatever they want on it but I would use it as quite like a online diary which is really cringe to think back of what I must have written as a teenager on there but I think on the family computer I think my mum might have read something and she just sat me down and was like you know how are you feeling what's going on so I don't think there would have been anyone else at that time that could have empathized more obviously because she had her own struggles so verbalizing it to someone but almost in this indirect way of she'd read something that I'd written was really helpful to me I'm a very good writer of my emotions I don't feel like I'm very articulate when I'm speaking but writing I can write how I'm thinking and how I'm feeling especially as a young teenager I was very into writing so I think having it written down and then my mum read that and then she could bring it up and highlight certain parts of what I'd written I think that was like a really big turning point for being able to speak out loud about my mental health and how I was feeling. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I mean, as we've touched on, other people's moods and reactions to things definitely have that triggering effect on me due to being so sensitive to rejection, so sensitive to other people's emotions and just absorbing their emotions and their moods. I think that can really trigger me at times. You know, I could be having a good day and then a friend could respond to a message in a tone that I just felt was a bit off. And then that could put me in this spiral of wondering what I've done wrong and are they going to stop talking to me? How can I make this up to them? And I get this people-pleasing mindset. As well, another thing that I've noticed that triggers me sometimes is certain types of films and media can get me in this kind of ruminating mindset that I find difficult to shake too. So depending on like the theme of a film, it could be about death or it could have suicide in it or it could be about upsetting breakups. I remember the Joy Division Ian Curtis film, I think it was 2007 it came out, called Control. That's one of my favourite films ever, but it puts me in such a weird place after I've watched it, probably due to the themes of it, of depression and the suicide. I think... I kind of hold on to the feelings I experience when I'm watching something like that. So I have to watch something funny afterwards to like pull myself back out of it. Otherwise, I'll just I'll just stay in that really depressed mindset. And on the other hand, outside of the gym or including the gym, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health? Which ones have you found that have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I think firstly, as I mentioned, journaling, writing everything down helps me so much because it's, it's private to me but it helps me visualize how I'm feeling in a healthy way so that could be in the form of writing a list of actual emotions that I'm feeling at that time or, or during the day I could write lyrics I could just bullet point things I could write about things that I'm grateful for good things that have happened during the day but I also went into counseling during the pandemic and that was for bereavement counseling but it ended up being about going through breakup and stuff. And I was very resistant to counselling to begin with. And it was the first time kind of at the age of like 28 that I'd done counselling. And I found it really beneficial. And it's something that I'd definitely go back into. Another thing that I think helps me is by having a good sense of humour or having a dry sense of humour. I'm a very self-deprecating person and I try to lighten the mood, whatever the situation so you could say that I use humour to deflect negative feelings as well and distract myself from sitting with anxiety, but it works for me. And, you know, other people might think, oh, why is she Why is she making a joke about something that's actually quite serious? But that just helps me. It's, it helps me get through things. Yeah, I do that a lot, but I have to also add a filter because sometimes I can be really dark with my sense of humour, even yeah, about my own same. experiences, and <laughs> some people aren't ready for that. <laughs> what is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be self-help or mental health related. doesn't exclusively have to be. If you can't think of a book or don't read, podcast, piece of popular culture, film, play, anything you want, album, whatever. 
So it's not necessarily a mental health book, but I really enjoyed the book Attached by Dr. Amir Levine and Rachel Heller, I think. Yes, yes, I've read this. It has also come up as a topic of discussion on a previous podcast episode where we uh, discussed the pros and cons of it. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. So it discusses the four different attachment styles in relationships, so anxious avoidant, anxious avoidant, and secure. And yeah, it's not necessarily a mental health or self-help book, but I think it really helps you to understand your reactions and triggers to things, not even just in a relationship, but it could be in the workplace or with your friends. And I learned a lot about myself during the course of reading that book and I identified a lot with the anxious attachment style and reading the triggers I was just like oh my god this is like a checklist (laughs) of what I do when I'm in a relationship and then it kind of explains why you might be feeling that way and how to avoid reacting that way so that's a really brilliant book a podcast that I actually quite enjoyed I haven't listened to it in a while but I really like the fern cotton podcast I think it's called happy place and she has the different guests on and um, some of them are quite famous to discuss different issues I think they've had people on who've gone sober and people who have yeah got these various conditions and how they realize that they have these issues and how they have approached it and what they are doing to help themselves I just find things like that really interesting rather than hearing from things from a more of a scientific point of view if it's something that you can listen to or read about from a personal standpoint I think that's much more beneficial to yourself. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why? A mantra? Hmm. I think I just have to remind myself that when I'm in these darker places I've been there before and I will get through it. I'll get through it again and again and again and that's it really. <laughs> I think I've just got to give my own self that reassurance that I can do this. And as a final question, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? I think because we are a world that spends so much time online, I think there needs to be a lot more awareness of online spaces, such as VELT and other like men's mental health charities, like Andy's Man Club, dedicated places for men and other people to learn about their mental health. I think there's a lot of more palatable mental health, like Instagram accounts, where they can do these really cute, shareable kind of graphics, but people shy away when it gets to the nitty-gritty of mental health. Indeed. <laughs> you know, that I is think... one of the banes of my life with the mental health community, in inverted uh-huh. commas. Yeah, there's a lot of mental health days and mental health awareness weeks and people sharing, it's okay to not be okay. Well, I don't think it's okay to not be okay that it affects you in these certain ways. It's not okay to feel not okay that you don't want to be here anymore. And we need to be more honest about confronting the fact that it's not pretty, it's not cute, it's not a nice thing to go through, it's not a trend. It's serious stuff that people are going through every day and they need real support in it. And the NHS is on their knees with mental health and with the mental health departments and I just feel like more needs to be done to encourage people to speak about their mental health from a younger age as well so that could come in the form of it being put on the curriculum at schools where it kind of opens up a space from a younger age to encourage people to feel like they can talk about their mental health and get you into the habit of speaking up about how you feel so it doesn't become stigmatised when you're older and you feel comfortable about speaking up. It almost feels like the conversation, despite me doing this for six years in the mainstream, is still shying away from mental illness, despite the fact it's all about mental health. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's not something that 
is being kept away and shied away from, but it almost is when it comes to the actuality, the actual symptoms that people might be displaying. That's when people do shy away. Because they're not pretty. Mental illness makes good people do very bad things and there seems to be some sort of weird denial of that fact. You only have to look at people who have addiction. This is gambling or substances. You know, people with gambling addictions who are good people steal money from their parents or steal money from their friends. Like, they do bad things. You know, that's why people run away from them and that's why they end up being on their own and have no one to support because they do all these bad things. It's like, if we deny that mental illness makes good people act in very bad ways, we're not going to get anywhere. No, no. And, And it makes no sense to offer this kind of superficial level of support and not actually do anything. You know, that's not what's needed. We need more... And on that pessimistic note, but I hope we have an optimistic note at some point soon. Jennifer Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed speaking to you. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. A big thank you to Jennifer for being my special guest on this episode pod and for checking in with me all about her life and about PMDD, which I hope has educated you male listeners and maybe some female listeners too. I'll sign us off by saying, please give this a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash ventshelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe, buy a Vent t-shirt, buy a ticket to the next Just Checking In podcast live show on Friday, September 29th. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Bye.